Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers discuss with our guests legal news, events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Tastatinius and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is Trish Rich of Holland and Knight, one of my best friends and the host of her own one-day award-winning podcast, Chicago Dish. Hi, Trish. Hey, John. Thanks so much for that lovely introduction. You're very welcome. <laughs> it's will be deserved one day. We'll see. So, Trish, we're joined today by another friend and a former CBA president, Dan Cotter of Latimer, LaFay, and Foyk. Did I pronounce that right? Fayak. Fayak. Sorry, Dan. (laughs) I've got a difficult name in my firm's uh, name, too. I I get it. Uh, Dan has a diverse practice in both corporate law and litigation, but that's not what he came here to talk about with us today. No, Dan has something far more interesting, uh, at least for a history nerd like me. His new book, The Chief Justices, The 17 Men of the Center Seat, Their Courts, and Their Times. Dan, welcome to CBA's At The Bar. Thank you, John and Trish, for having me. We are so excited to be here with you today. I have been tracking the progress of this book for a long time, and I'm really excited that it's finally out. So thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you. Pleased to be here. So, Dan, I'm going to put it out there that uh, this book just came out a few days ago. I have ordered my copy, but I have not read it yet. But I read your column in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin religiously. I know you're a fantastic writer with a deep understanding of this topic, and I'm really looking forward to discussing it with you today as well. Well, thank you. And a lot of the, a lot of the book will then look familiar to you because a lot of the introductions to the chapters come from oh, the Daily it? Law Bulletin. Oh, well, good. Okay, then I guess I've read some of it already. Never mind then. <laughs> uh, but now that I've gotten that off my chest, let's start at the beginning. It occurred to me when I was walking over here today that most lawyers are professional writers in one capacity or another. A lot of us dream of one day writing a book, but very few of us have the nerve to actually go through <laughs> with it and commit pen to paper in a, a disciplined way. You actually did it, and I was wondering what compelled you to start. That's an excellent question, John, and part of it is is I have about 300 books on my shelves at home, and my wife keeps asking how, when we're going to get rid of those, and so this was an opportunity to get those out. Uh, but... Um, it's something I wanted to do and I've been thinking about for a long time since law school and trying to figure out what the Supreme Court, its place in our history and kind of that. So, And, and like you said, I write a lot for the Daily Law Bulletin and other things. So it was just a, a means for me to really dig deeper and get it out. So for those with similar ambitions, how would you describe the process of writing a book like this to them? What can they expect to get into? It's an arduous process for a lot of reasons. One is finding a, a publisher in this day and age. Uh, when I first started on this path in 2015, I went to the American Bar Association. They have that uh, publishing arm uh, that they've pretty much stopped doing non-substantive books. And so for about a year, I went back and forth, submitted drafts, got feedback, submitted more drafts. And then I got an email saying, oh, we should have told you uh, we're not doing any more non-substantive then books. Then they told you. Then they told me. Okay. That after, after that year. why the ABA is where it is. <laughs> well, that, that, could, that could be. I'm not going to comment on that. I'm in the House of Delegates. But <laughs> we the, wish uh, our friends at the ABA well. <laughs> we do, we do. And then uh, trying to find a publisher. Then I was uh, Michael Hyman. is a great resource for book publishing in the legal arena. Justice on the Illinois Justice, Court. Justice Michael Hyman. He suggested I reach out to the North Carolina Academic Press. I did. And uh, got feedback again. They had just dropped their uh, publication arm as well, uh, but they formed a partnership with 12 Tables Press, and so that's where we ended up. Is that a reference to the Roman 12 Tables? I was wondering when I was looking at the card. I think so, but I've I've never verified that with the publisher. Yeah. (laughs) So what did you learn from the process, other than obviously the the substance of 
behind the chief justices? Like, what did you learn about writing? You know, as you said, we're all professional writers as lawyers, uh, but we we all have uh, word constraints and publication constraints. The, the biggest part I think I learned is just the discipline of actually writing and making sure that while I was reading and writing and referencing materials that I did it on the spot mm-hmm. so that I, you know, my daily law bulletin uh, columns, my Chicago Bar Association record columns, all the stuff I've written in the past, it's not footnoted or referenced. And so it's much more difficult as you're going through to make sure that every sentence is cited, that you're not plagiarizing, that you're doing the right thing. So that's that was really the process and just the discipline. And I started in October of 2017 with the contract. By July of 2018, I had about 30,000 words, hmm. so not a lot of written materials. Right. And so I really set a schedule then that every day or every week I was going to have at least 1,000 or 2,000 words. Yeah, and the uh, Hemingway thing, one hour yeah. a day, and then you can have whiskey for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, so that to me seems <laughs> like a fairly complicated issue, right? Because you're still juggling your full-time law practice, and I've heard, I mean— other authors say they have a, a goal of writing, you know, an hour a day or a thousand words a, a day or whatever. And so how good were you at, at keeping to that schedule? I find I'm my own worst <laughs> boss. I let myself off the hook pretty easily. And, and Trish, that's the same thing with me. So like I said, by the 4th of July weekend, I had 30,000 words. I knew I needed at least probably 90,000. And so from that point on until October 1st, almost every day, I made it a goal to write at least 500 words, 750 wow. on the weekends to really do a lot more. Uh, but it's difficult, right? You're working. And then the week before it was due, I went down to Nashville for a conference. I was down there for four days. We drove, get to the hotel, and I, I asked my wife, where's my briefcase? She said, how would I know? It turns out I'd left it back in the kitchen uh, by the garage door. Yeah. And so for four days, I had no um, no ability to work on the actual draft. At least you knew where it was. (laughs) It could have been worse. It could have been much worse. Well, this book is, would it be fair to think about it as like 17 different stories? I mean, did that make the writing process easier that you could split things up by chief justice? That that did make it easier because it is 17 stories, uh, but it's also trying to tell an overall overarching history and civics education of those 230 years. So that, that created some difficulties. And one of the things I noticed, again, the Sunday before I was going to mail it overnight to the publisher, I was looking through and scrolling, and I, I realized that Earl Warren's chapter, uh, mid-sentence, I'd stopped in about 1936 with his career <laughs> because I had done, just as you said, like different stories. I was reading the book about him, and then it referred to somebody else. And so I went back to that <laughs> chapter and then forgot about it. And probably those four days I was gone and then have the ability to work on it. And so I panicked and, and had about another three or 4,000 words to write, you know, 10 that's o'clock at night. I think that's the right reaction there. <laughs> yeah. Right? So it, We've that, all been there. <laughs> it occurs to me as you said that, that there have only been 17 chief justices. I think we're on like 45 presidents. Right. Well, I should know that. But Depends right. on how you count, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 44 that count. I mean, that, right. Yeah. 44 people that serve 45 presidencies. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, so... I mean, that's remarkable, the the tenure that some of these justices had. I, I think Marshall and Taney alone were more than half a century, right? They were over 60 years, so they're the longest two wow. serving justices in the Supreme Court's history. It is remarkable, and the first three only served 11 years combined. So wait, you have 14 three. serving uh, 219 wait, years. Jay, Rutledge, Rutledge and 
I forget. Ellsworth. Ellsworth. <laughs> oh, yeah, whatever. It doesn't count. John likes to show off his history knowledge, and I love it when he gets things wrong. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I got two out of three. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's good enough. Almost a passing grade. For indeed. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Thanks. So in the book, it seems as if you think that Chief Justice Marshall was the most influential of the justices. Am I? Did I pick that up correctly? That's absolutely correct. And I, I do an appendix where I rank them with the caveat that it's almost impossible. And uh, the other day I was asked why uh, Bill Rehnquist is number four and uh, a lot of reasons for that. But I do. And it's not just because of Marbury versus Madison, which confirmed uh, Federalist Paper 78, it confirmed what John Jay and Ellsworth and others had said about the court and its role, uh, but it's McCulloch. It's it's all the cases that came out, and there was a, uh, about an 11- or 12-year period where the court did not change, and they had a slew of, of hits, right, that still to this day, you know, at least last time we checked, uh, the, the current <laughs> Supreme Court were still are precedential, and they still stand with the test of time. So he really was, I think, influential. He also was just a driving force. And when you look at uh, Jefferson and other uh, presidents, they tried to pack the court with people that were more attuned to their political philosophy. And he somehow still managed through his force of will, his force of intellect to get a majority and a unanimous decision in most of those cases, which is remarkable when you look at where we're at today again. He really staked out the the court as a truly co-equal branch of government, whereas before it really hadn't been, right? Absolutely, John. He, uh, you know, John Jay was asked to uh, take the spot uh, before Ellsworth did, and, and John Jay uh, rejected the invitation. He said that the court had no prestige; it was a pointless body and wasn't coequal. And so he really did. He established it, uh, not again only in Marbury, but just in his style and approach. And uh, you know, he had some nullifications, some questions, some. Uh, push back, but he forcefully again said that the court is the ultimate body to rule on these things and made it a co-equal branch that it is today. Hmm. I'm a fan of anyone who needles Thomas Jefferson, too. He was just a <laughs> hypocritical <laughs> jerk. Yes. I saw Hamilton as well. Oh, well, yeah, that too, but I mm-hmm. thought that before. So, mm. Oh. This is this oh. is a hot take, Trish. <laughs> All right. Well, they were related. They were cousins. Right. And that's part, a big part of the, the fights that they had. Yeah, they're, they're off of the Randolph family, so yeah, the Virginian uh, nobility was <laughs> right. a bit incestuous back right. then. <laughs> so you teach a course on the Supreme Court at John Marshall, right? I do, although I haven't taught it in a few years okay. due to some other factors at the school. <laughs> <laughs> yada yada yada. <laughs> um, so, are you? How much of this book overlaps with your course? Any of it? I mean, were you able to crib from? Your uh, teachings? I was able to crib a little bit. The reality, though, is is if you've ever tried to teach a course at a law school and you're adjunct or otherwise, you have to I go have, through yeah. the right. You have, <laughs> and and you have to go through the uh, curriculum committee. And uh, so I sat down and said, I want to teach it as more of a survey class with the 17 justices. It's a 14 week course. We'll do the first three in the first week. And they came back and said, Now you can't do that. It has to be more substantive. And so the way that they designed what I eventually taught and continue to teach is I pick one chief justice from an era and then an associate justice from a completely different era. And then we talk about their biographies and, mm. and kind of compare it. So it's not exactly what I want to do. But I was able to crib some things, including uh, I mentioned in the thing, I think somewhere, that although John Marshall was the fourth chief justice, even though I taught it and said, look, he was the fourth, the papers that I got back were, you know, 
John Marshall is the first chief justice. He was great. Yeah. And so because people think of that. But I was able to use some of that materials um, yeah. and, and think about some of the stuff I taught back then. So is it fair to say this book is, uh, you know, an example of what you wanted that course to be? Trish, that's, that's very fair. And yeah. if, if I'd love to be able to teach this as a survey course yeah. somewhere in the Chicago area or anywhere in the country for that matter. All right, all right. Enough with the introspection. Let's get back to the book. <laughs> um, so you said you ranked the chief justices. Is that an order of influence, greatness? It's an order of uh, what I thought was the most influential and, and had the greatest impact. So who are the top three? It's, it's John Marshall. It's Charles Evans Hughes. And then it's Earl Warren. It was Not interesting. Bainey. Well, <laughs> when- not Tawny because uh, you know I rank him towards the bottom just because one case made his career. Yeah, Dred Scott. So, mm-hmm. and it's unfortunate because if he were in a different time, uh, maybe it would be different. But I, I write in the book about Tawny and his actions as an attorney general and some of his memos. And the case number one, it was not unexpected or ill received. We're back talking in about Dred Scott. Now, Dred right? Scott. It yeah. wasn't ill received at the time, and it, and it, it was really. Uh, followed his his beliefs mm-hmm. in in terms of slavery, in terms of how they were seen in society. So it, it really wasn't uh, unexpected his decision. Yeah. But in retrospect, of course, it, it was a terrible decision that maybe precipitated the beginning of the Civil War. So just to put that in context a little bit for our audience, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've read Dred Scott, but that was the decision where the Supreme Court said that. African-Americans had never been citizens of the United States and that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional and that the that Congress had no power to regulate slavery, right? John, that's absolutely right. And it involved Dred Scott, who had been uh, free and then went to Missouri. And then uh, the question was whether or not in transportation that he lost his freedom. And uh, he took it up and it went through the court several times, but that's exactly right. And and that decision uh, was in 1854, and the war started in 1861. So, and like you said, that's often cited as one of the possible, you know, um, this is some of the kindling for the Civil War, for lack of a better term. So, assuming that's true, why wouldn't he be in your top list of influencers? I mean, that's a pretty big thing. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. That, but the list that I put together was based more on positive legacy or, or outcomes. Mm. And again, you can question why Rehnquist is up there. But he's uh, universally, if you look at list, he's he's always at the bottom. And it's unfortunate in some ways because Scalia, Charles Evans Hughes, others have throughout history talked about he was an excellent uh, Supreme Court chief. Uh, but again, that one case has put a damper on him and so he doesn't get the elevation that he might otherwise get. Sure. So I think Dred Scott, in I probably have read it even less recently than John, um, is widely thought to be probably the worst Supreme Court decision, or at least the most famous worst Supreme Court decision. Do you agree with that, or is there another one that stands out to you as particularly bad? I, I think that's a terrible case, but you also have Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, which was a terrible case in, the, in Reconstruction. You have Korematsu, which is a terrible yeah. case. And so I think there's other bad cases. But that case just sticks out again because it, again, maybe precipitated the Civil War. It probably would have happened anyway if you look at the timing in the early 1800s to mid-1800s before the war, as John, the historian, would know. But I do think it's probably one of the worst, if not the worst, decisions. And so he has that legacy. So that's a fun game. Let's talk about favorites and uh, least favorites. Moving away from decisions and in terms 
how you would rank the justices in terms of influence. Who's your personal favorite justice? I, I actually think I know who it is, and I think it's mine too, but I want to. no. Okay, <laughs> gonna... so you write it down. Okay. All right. Okay. My, my favorite is, is probably John Marshall. <laughs> now you got it wrong? Wrong. I picked John Paul Stevens, who's <laughs> my oh, favorite. You're talking about non-chiefs? Or oh, I thought they, we were talking about all justices. If you're talking about all justices, Justice John Paul Stevens is one of my judicial <laughs> idols for sure. That was kind of a moving target. That was yeah. unfair. So sorry. Um, <laughs> Once again, I screwed up the game. <laughs> but but I think again, I think just in terms of the story and the influence, and I went to the law school named after him, and just again, where he sits in the whole hierarchy of chiefs. I think it would be John Marshall. Okay, least favorite. Now that's here's the fun one. Oh gosh, <laughs> least favorite. Is, the list is long. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to try to guess. It, it, it is long, um, to an extent. Uh, again, Tawny. Although you know, again, I in the book I mentioned a lot of the tributes when he died and when they tried to put a bust of him in the Supreme Court uh, at the time. There was a big fight about that about having him down there mm-hmm. uh, by the time he'd done it. There's uh, probably John Rutledge, just because, again, he never actually sat as, as chief justice. He was a recess appointment by George Washington. He, on the way up to take a seat, uh, he badmouthed uh, John Jay in the Jay's Treaty and also George Washington in the process. And when Congress, when the Senate got back in session later that year in December, uh, he was the first Supreme Court nominee to be rejected by a vote of 14 to 10. He went home to Charleston, South Carolina, and walked into the water to uh, commit suicide. And his uh, slaves pulled him from the water and saved him. And he never was oh, in public, public life again. Yeah. So I told you there would be a <laughs> that, that, that melodramatic event again. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, there's some other ones that weren't very effective. Uh, Wait and Fuller, towards the end of the 19th century, weren't very effective in Reconstruction. They narrowly interpret it the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, 14th mostly, uh, so that it really uh, was strange that it, in some cases uh, some of their decisions uh, favored the KKK, for example, through the 14th Amendment and the rights of KKK members vis-a-vis That's perverse. others. It's very perverse. So you, as John mentioned in the beginning, you're a former CBA president and you've been involved in the Chicago Bar Association for a very long time, as long as I've been involved in the Bar Association. And I don't I don't mean to say that you're old. You're one of the <laughs> more spry guys around here for sure, Seasoned. but for a long time. Um, and one of the CBAs, we have justices come through this building about once a year or once every other year as they're coming through Chicago. So do you have a personal story you can tell us about meeting a justice that you particularly enjoy? Sure. And there are several. Uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in a few years ago when I was the president of the CBA, uh, we had a, a talk with Judge Williams at the time she was I still on the bench. That. Yeah. And uh, at the end of it, that was right around the time that the Notorious RBG was just starting. Mm. And I had a T-shirt I'd ordered and never used. It was like a 3X, you know, <laughs> my size. And I gave it to her at the oh, end. Oh, wow. <laughs> for, for our listeners, Dan is a big man. Yeah, a professional bodybuilder or yeah. semi-professional bodybuilder. Weightlifter? Powerlifter. Powerlifter, yes. And, uh, God, Trish. So she, I know. I'll see myself out. She looked at it. I think she was just like, what am I going to do with this other than nice clean my beach car? Towel. Right? Yeah. Be my yoga mat. <laughs> Uh, she was great. The, the other person, again, that's that's great in person is John Paul Stevens. He's 98 this week, I think, or yeah, I think Sunday right. maybe. And 
his mind is incredible. So again, when we were going over him, when he just had his book out, he was coming for the John Paul Stevens Award luncheon. Second Amendment book. Uh, It was that or it was the five amendments. I can't remember which one at the time. And he was just fantastic, and he remembered things, and his memory is so crisp. And I remember, again, Judge Williams interviewed him, and he's very particular. Like, that's not exactly right, he'd say all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And then he'd go into what the precise thing was. But a very wonderful person. And then we met, uh, we've also had Sotomayor was here. And I'm trying to think of if we've had other justices. Scalia spoke next door once or twice. Is I Kagan think Kagan was a speaker last year for the Seventh Circuit. I think circuit. that's right. Okay. Yeah. I missed that. I wasn't at that. So. Yeah. So where would you rank our current chief, Roberts? That's a great question, John. And I, I haven't ranked him in the appendix just because he's midterm. I think it's still an open question where he's going to end up. I think that his struggle in Joan Biskopic and her book, The Chief, and in columns I've written the Daily Law Bulletin, and most people are, are saying it's unclear – uh, whether he's going to be a true swing vote and a true centrist now that the courts become more right-leaning, or if he's going to adhere to his ideology, which is very conservative. Uh, but he professes all the time about how he thinks of the prestige of the court and the long-term credibility. And so I think he's an interesting person to watch. I think the census case yesterday uh, that was heard, he tended to think that asking a census a citizen question is fine. And he mentioned something about the Voting Rights Act and protections under there, which hmm. to me doesn't make any sense. I've never been. No. We, I've done, we, we know what he did to the Voting Rights Act before. Well, right. He eviscerated that already. And the fact is, is I've never seen a census at any polling place. I've done voter protection since 2008 on the national elections. Have you ever seen a census or anybody hmm. looking and saying, are you a citizen? Are you in the actual census? No. Absolutely not. I work every election day. I've right? never seen it. <laughs> and what would it do anyway? Because every 10 years so... People don't move. Like, I don't yeah. understand that. So I think that they'll come down 5-4 there. Right. I don't expect him to be the centrist. And so— It is th- remarkable, though, that he's kind of considered the swing vote now. Yeah, the, the court. court has—don't you think it's, the court has moved pretty dramatically to the right in the last 15 years? It's, it's moved very dramatically to the right. And so although it's only 5-4 right now, uh, 1991 it was 8-1 to one when Clarence Thomas joined the court. But you have to consider that we had Souter, uh, Kennedy— O'Connor and Stevens mm-hmm. on the court. And Stevens, again, Stevens was was a Republican appointee. He was not a liberal, but by the time he finished on the bench, again, because of the makeup, it looked like he was a liberal more in the center with, with some of the liberals. So Yeah, I've heard um, Justice Stevens say over and over again, like, I'm still a Republican. <laughs> right. And it's really interesting to hear him say that. Right. And even Sandra Day O'Connor in, in the book, The First, that just came out recently, there's a story about her and how concerned she is about Samuel Alito being her replacement right. and how, again, that shifted the court to the right. He's very conservative. Mm-hmm. And so the, the question is, is for Chief Justice Roberts, again, does he look more towards the long-term legacy of the court and be more of an evolutionary type of chief justice that can drive some of that? Or is he the revolutionary justice that Rehnquist started in, in his term? So that's a perfect lead into a question that's been on my mind, which is what qualities, in, in studying all these chief justices and learning so much about them, what did you learn about the qualities that it takes to make for a great chief justice? That's an excellent question. I think first and foremost, when you look at the top three that I mentioned in my appendix and that I think are the most three influential, and many people agree, uh, Warren, Hughes, and Marshall, they all had a great intellect, number one. 
But number two, they had a great ability to listen, and they had a great ability to politic, not only in conference but in general, and to influence how their courts were seen long-term. And there's a story that I mentioned in the uh, book, on in the chapter on Earl Warren, uh, on his last day in 1969, he wanted to retire in 1968, but they could not find a replacement, uh, so LBJ was unable to replace him. So he agreed to stay on for an extra year. And so in 1969, his last day on the bench, he issues his rulings, and Richard Nixon, who was a Supreme Court bar member, steps up to the podium, and although he hated Earl Warren, they were absolute enemies, he got up and blew smoke up his skirt, right? He was saying, oh, you're so great, what a great man. Then Earl Warren said in response, he, he kind of made a warning to the nation and to Nixon. He said, whenever nine individuals on this bench, nine men, have the same views on social issues, the Supreme Court is done being a credible body and a co-equal branch of government. And mm. so I think when you look at those three, again, when you look at Earl Warren and Brown versus Board, that was a 5-4 decision likely the other way, according to Frankfurter and all the other justices that, that remained when Vincent had a heart attack. And somehow he got a 9-0 decision. And one of the justices was crying from the bench when it was read because he said he could never go home to the South again because the people won't accept them. So you think about that, mm -hmm. and then, then you think about Rehnquist and Roberts, and you think about Berger. They did not have that kind of cohesiveness, that intellectual force, and that personality of just being a, yeah. able to move the court so that it doesn't become this revolutionary body that it's becoming. If I remember correctly, one of Marshall's secrets was just getting all the justices to eat dinner and drink together every night, right? <laughs> that's how they started to get along. That's that's very true. They At that time, they lived together and roomed together. They rode circuit together, but he had an extensive uh, wine inventory, especially Madeira. Yeah. And so they would sit around and make decisions together. And again, uh, when you read and look at the stuff about him, Again, by his force of will, there were people that were dissenting, but uh, Johnson, for example, was on the court, and he was quoted as saying, I was going to dissent, but uh, I just decided it wasn't worth it, and I just mm -hmm. went along and silenced my <laughs> opposition because Marshall's just that forceful. That's so interesting. And I, I read that story in the book about Chief Justice Warren, and I really liked it. And I, I liked your description of him, which I wrote down in my notes here, that he was a masterful coalition builder. And it strikes me that that's one of the most important qualities you can have in a chief justice. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree. Because again, if you look at some of the more ineffective justices, they, they didn't have that ability. Yeah. And they didn't have the leadership. And there were some tough courts. So when Taft was on, when Hughes was on, uh, there were some tough blocks and voting blocks and ideologies. Uh, Frankfurter was a tough personality, for example. But justices like Earl Warren just had that ability, again, to to move the court and to get it consistent with the long-term view. When I read that in the book, um, one of the things that reminded me of is something I had read years before, and I don't know where, was that Chief Justice Roberts wants to be seen as a consensus builder on the court, but he has, and I don't know if this is true, I've not fact-checked it, so I'm probably going to get the side-eye <laughs> from John, but that he has more five and four opinions than any court in history. Number one, do you know if that's true? <laughs> and number two, why do you think that is? is it, do we have a more fractured court now? Is it is it a failing of Chief Justice Roberts? I mean, what is the issue there? Trish, that's a great question. and I, th I think we do have a more fractured court. We, we don't have swing voters in 
The caveat is, is that when you look at Sandra Day O'Connor, when you look at Justice Kennedy, they were limited swing voters. Kennedy was more of a libertarian, so on a couple of things like same sex, he was very libertarian, right, and let people do what they like to do. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was conservative, but not as conservative. Uh, but I do think it's become more fractured, and one of the stories that I write about in the book is Roe. So Roe was a 7-2 decision. Five of the majority were Republicans, and that was well-received. It didn't become an issue for this nation until Ronald Reagan got to the mm-hmm. White House and ran on a platform of overturning Roe. And because if you think about it, it had nothing to do with, with abortion. It had to do with doctors and being states and states' rights. And so it was a 7-2 decision, including three of the justices that Richard Nixon had appointed as law and order justices. And so now Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, has has put together kind of this open forum. And he wrote an op-ed that I did a concurrence on in, in Daily Law Bulletin. He talks about 73 decisions that are 5-4, where the five are the Republicans on the court, at least five Republicans over the last 13 years, and that they've all been reducing individual rights and corporate interests have been promoted. And so I do think that's the case. Uh, There's a thing in the book about 1918 or 1916, I think, and they said up to that point there had never been a case other than one tax case where all party appointed justices had been on the same side uh, of an issue. Really? I mean, it's an incredible thing, isn't it? And so now, you know, and we talk, you know, you see a lot of the studies. So you see uh, law review articles, you see other uh, Politico and other places where they say, well, this court has more unanimous decisions than anybody else. But those, again, those are on cases of regulatory and water rights and Mm -hmm. statutory interpretations on these key issues that affect really our future and and individual rights and those types of things. There have been more 5-4 decisions in the last two courts so Rehnquist oh. and, and Roberts. So friend of the pod, retired judge Richard Posner, late of the Seventh Circuit, is famous for saying that he no longer considers the Supreme Court to be a functioning court, but really more of a political body. Is that something you agree with? You know, John, I, I, I've thought long and hard about that, and I'm starting to really, I do start to agree with that. You know, one of the things that, as I was investigating the book, and just in general that we all know, is that the last three nominees to the court uh, there were uh, $20 million in dark money spent on those three nominees. Seven or $10 million was spent against Garland uh, so that he did not get on. And the other money has been spent on the last two nominees. And I have real concerns about that, about, again, there's no quid without a quo, right? In my view, we don't know well, who these people are. According to the Supreme are. Court, there is. Well, actually, right. Yeah. And, 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 and they say it has no influence. The case a couple of years ago with the Virginia governor, I think. The, the other startling thing I saw somewhere, and I haven't verified it, is that the Chamber of Commerce which again might be behind some of that money, is in about half of the cases that appear before the Supreme Court or funding amicus briefs or involved. So again... Does that make you a little bit nauseous? Because it kind of makes me a little bit nauseous when you're saying that. It makes me very nauseous, and it makes me very nauseous and, and concerned that you know we have a president and, and we have times where things are going to get to the court. We saw that today. President Donald Trump tweeted that if he is impeached, he'll run right to the U.S. Supreme Court. That should be a no-brainer because the Constitution lays out separation of powers for impeachment. But in this day and age, you wonder, you know, in the pit of your stomach, says, okay, what's the court going to do on this issue? Have there been other eras of the court that 
seem to be driven more by political ideology than legal philosophy? And if so, how did the court dig itself out? John, there, there have been a couple of times where that's kind of happened, but not as severe as now. But one time for sure would be uh, in the 1930s and in FDR with his court packing plan, the, the switch in time that saved nine. Uh, there were four conservative justices, the four horsemen of the Supreme Court. That rolled as a conservative block. They took the limo to the Supreme Court every day. They talked they about really? what, yeah, yeah. It's, it's but they, they were blocking. I actually can't wait to talk about this um, because, <laughs> okay, so uh, for our longtime listeners of both this pod and, and my, my pod, you'll know, lots of people know I grew up in Michigan. I'm a proud graduate of Michigan law. It has been like an hour since you've mentioned that. So. <laughs> <laughs> and Michigan law has produced three Supreme Court justices, which are Frank Murphy, uh, William Rufus Day, and George Sutherland. And I actually have one of the best gifts anybody ever gave me. I have in my office over at Holland and Knight, which is a card that George Sutherland wrote to somebody that was thinking about going to law school, where he <laughs> talks about the practice of law being a noble profession and everything. And um, I dated that guy for like three weeks, and it was like the best <laughs> gift anybody's ever got me. <laughs> it was worth it. <laughs> totally worth it. But... Um, but anyway, when I was – and so George Sutherland, of course, was a member of the Four Horsemen. He was. And proud Michigan legacy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and when I got to that part in the book, in this footnote, you sort of drop in very casually that you think maybe Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh <laughs> are the modern-day Four Horsemen. And if <laughs> anything in this book gave me <laughs> an absolute panic attack, it was that – footnote. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that and and <laughs> tell us that that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope it's not true, but I actually labeled them the four horsemen of the Fed sock. Yeah. And uh, there's been some uh, conversation, not conversation, but uh, some groups have, have asked me in other writings not to constantly refer to the Federalist Society. But I, I do have that concern. And, and uh, what's interesting is, is they're very much like that the one difference might be that, like Clarence Thomas, is kind of in his own atmosphere of what he considers to be uh, the law and, and where he's at on originalism and all this stuff, and some of the dissents that he's written in recent weeks on on death penalty and other stuff. But other than that, I, I don't see them not voting together yeah. on almost everything, and that concerns me again because we have some real issues and challenges in this nation, as we always do. And we've looked to the Supreme Court to kind of be that body that doesn't have any power of the sword, power of the purse, but it has power of the word, and it's been accepted with some pushback sometimes. But when I added that footnote, that was towards the end of the process. And I, yeah. uh, one of the challenges of this book, as an aside, is that as I was writing it, because it's so timely and because things keep generating and Roberts occasionally will do something, I was constantly updating and footnoting stuff. And eventually my publisher said, enough, like, these are just only, these are must-haves, no more any words added. You can only make spelling corrections and gram grammatical changes. So I, I, I hope it's not true, but at the same time, I'm kind of a pessimist, I would say. Yeah. And I, I do think that we're headed there, and I, I think it will just get worse. I think that this, this term, because Kavanaugh's contentious confirmation hearings I think we see Roberts being a little more moderating and not taking on some of the key issues. And that's common when anybody joins the court, but I, I do fear that. You know, one of the things, and this may just be my misperception, so I'm interested in your thoughts on it. 
one of the things in my head that I hadn't really put together is I think of the four horsemen as four people who really worked together and plotted together to literally like, you know, <laughs> move the court. And it never occurred to me that these four justices on our current Supreme Court were literally like having secret meetings and limos to do this. Do you think that's true? And please, God, say no. <laughs> Trish, no, that that's not what I – when I identified them as four horsemen, more as kind of a consistent block that we've not seen in a long time. But I don't think that they're having secret meetings. I don't think <laughs> that you. that's happening. Limos are a little passe anyway. <laughs> that's probably a good place for us to take a quick break. This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process while quickly addressing the pains that can arise from a newly mandated process. CourtFiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at CourtFiling.net to take advantage to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let CourtFiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about is that there has been a lot of ink spilled in the last few years, and I think probably before that. But um, even as recently today, I saw that Justice Breyer spoke out about this, about the idea of term limits for Supreme Court justices and potentially even more generally for federal judges. And I think my understanding of the subject is that when we first wrote the Constitution, people weren't living forever, and that we weren't contemplating that people would serve on the court until they were 80, 85, <laughs> 90 years old. But now, thanks to the marvels of modern medicine, quite a bit different. So uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts about instituting term limits, either for the federal judges as a whole or just at the Supreme Court. And that's a great question, Trish. The problem is and challenges is that the Constitution, Article 3, says that Article Three judges serve on good behavior, which has always been interpreted from the beginning to be lifetime tenure, unless you're impeached or something else. So it, I, I think it would require a constitutional amendment. Uh, you can change the number, of course, because the Judiciary Act of 1789 uh, established that there would be six justices. It's been seven, eight, nine, ten, and now it's been nine since 1869. So you can change the numbers. But there's a lot of proposals. And a couple of weeks ago, I had a an op-ed in the Des Moines Register, and I talked about the cautiousness that Democrats should take as they're talking about these various proposals. I don't know, Pete uh, Buttigieg mm -hmm. the other day uh, proposed having five Republicans, five Democrats, and then they would appoint five from the other courts of appeal. Jesus, seriously? And unanimously pick them. And again, advice and consent. It's a, it's a horrible idea. It's, it's unworkable. And if, if you can't unanimously agree on the five appellate court justices or judges that would come up, then you can't conduct business because you don't have a quorum. What? <laughs> right. I'm a big fan of uh, the mayor of South Bend's, but I, I agree that that's a bad idea. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. So term limits then? So term limits I don't think is doable without a constitutional amendment. But do you, if we could amend the constitution to do it, do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea? 
That's I, what we call a follow-up question. Right, right, right. <laughs> in and the biz. Yeah, in the biz, Dan. And, and, and the follow-up answers, I still think we need to be cautious because the whole intent of the Supreme Court in Article Three was that they would be the least political branch, that they would serve uh, without allegiance to a particular party or to a particular Senate or anything else. And I worry with term limits a couple things. One is that in, in terms of their independence, and two – is this revolving door? Once they're done, then do they go and work for the companies they ruled on previously? Mm-hmm. So I, I think do it they has, appear before the Supreme Court? Right? Do they appear before the Supreme Court? And so, and there have been some retired Supreme Court justices that are, have appeared before the Supreme Court. But I just think we need to be cautious. And I'm not a fan in general of opening up the Constitution because I think that's a dangerous, slippery slope. I know there's this balanced budget and other initiatives where the states are going to vote and have a Constitution of the states a convention of the states. I warned one of the founders of that, who's from Chicago and a good friend of mine, a lawyer, that that's what the intent was in Philadelphia in 1787. And the first thing they did was they went into uh, secret uh, meetings. And what came out was the Constitution that looked nothing like the Articles of Confederation. So I worry that if we open it up, things like the 13th Amendment might be gone, parts of the First Amendment might be gone, and then we'll have a very different nation than we do now. I would say the 19th Amendment. <laughs> 19th Amendment. Near and dear to my heart. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that sounds like a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back with Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. Need a lawyer? Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. And we're back. So, Dan, you're a longtime listener, friend of the pod. I know you know the game. It's stranger than legal fiction. The rules are really simple. Trish and I have researched a strange law that is still on the book somewhere, but probably shouldn't be. We've made another one up if Trish is following the rules this time. (laughs) Not very good at this. (laughs) And we're going to quiz you and each other to see if we can distinguish strange fact from legal fiction. Are you ready to play? I'm game for it, sure. All right, Trish, you want to lead off? I will do that. Thanks so much, John. So option number one is as follows. In Mount Pulaski, Illinois, it is illegal to throw snowballs. And option number two (laughs) is in Boulder, Colorado, it is illegal to move any boulders that are located on public property. So you um, (laughs) get to pick which one you think is actually a law and which one isn't. I'll go with the, the snowball. And do I have a snowball's hell and chance of being right? <laughs> snowball's real or fake? Snowball's real. Okay. Um, I'll go with the boulder one just to keep it interesting. <laughs> Why are you thinking the snowball one's real? 
I don't know. It just seems like uh, I'd read something about a snowball law somewhere in the country at one point. <laughs> Some sharp legal reasoning. Yeah. Right, over right. Yeah. And are this there is, even boulders in right. Boulder? This is your classic <laughs> law firm partner citing themselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I know there's some authority out there that says right. this. Go find it. Right. We yeah. just write cite in the brief. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've all been there. Um, oh, my gosh. So you're both a little bit right. John, you're, well, John, you're actually right. In Boulder, Colorado, it is illegal to move any boulders that are located on public property. Um, (laughs) Dan, it is illegal for girls to throw snowballs in Mount Pulaski, but it is not illegal for boys to throw snowballs in Mount Pulaski. And so uh, that injustice (laughs) is why I wanted to highlight that rule. And I think the next time that uh, <laughs> Justice Ginsburg comes to the CBA, we need to to get her on this. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> she wow. needs to rectify that wrong. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. In Topeka, Kansas, it is a misdemeanor to sing the alphabet song out loud in the street at night. Gosh, I hope that's true. <laughs> in Iowa, it is illegal to kiss someone in public for longer than five minutes, which is real, which is not. Dan? I want to go with the first one again, the the alphabet. Is the real one? It's the real one. What do you think, Trish? I think it's the Iowa law. Um, Let's that's... get the reasoning. What are you thinking? <laughs> are you anti-kissing? I mean, <laughs> it's gotta, there's got to be some sort of decency, morality, you know, public policy behind it. Dan, why are you thinking um, the Topeka one's real? It it seems to me like something that should be banned if it's not everywhere. <laughs> and you know what? You're right. Ah, well, yeah. Good. The Iowa one is often floating around the internet on you know sources like BuzzFeed as a weird fake or weird. You mean real my law. main source of news? Yeah, that one. Um, but it turns out it's not. Huh. At least I couldn't find it anywhere on the books. Interesting. And I word searched extensively. I'm actually tickled pink to get this one wrong because <laughs> I agree with Dan that that should be illegal everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be our show for today. I want to thank our guest, Dan Cotter, for joining us today to discuss his new book, The Chief Justices, The 17 Men of the Center Seat, Their Courts, and Their Times just out by 12 Tables Press and available wherever the finest books are sold. I also want to thank everyone here at the CBA who makes this machine run, including my co-host Trish Rich, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Ricardo Islas, and Jen Byrne on sound today, and of course, everyone at the Legal Talk Network. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the Bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the Bar. <laughs>